So for those of you guys watching us online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. Yes, Lord, that's so true. You loved us first. And Lord, right now, I, so many things, Lord, coming to my mind. Um, for our president, I pray that you'd give him wisdom, that you'd help him to make good and just decisions. Lord, for all of our leaders, especially for the ones that maybe we don't like that much, help them to make wise choices. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, space force, Lord, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety, we pray for their protection, we pray for their salvation. For Leah Sherabu, we've been praying for her for many years, Lord, still being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. For Pastor Yusuf, imprisoned in Iran. For Pastor Wang and John, also imprisoned because they are Christians in China, Lord. For the, for the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, for the Christians in Eritrea and Somalia and the South Sudan and Afghanistan. Lord, we pray for their protection. We pray for their safety. We remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Lord, today I, I pray that you would free us from distraction. I pray that we'd hear from you. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged by you, Lord. We need you. I need you. So guide my speech today. Help me to say only what you want me to say. Protect me from saying something I shouldn't say. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life. Guide my words. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. God is my refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. I love Psalm 46. I love it. That's why I memorized it. And I remember getting the idea to memorize it from Mr. Piper. He uh, had one of his parishioners in the hospital goes to visit them, gets in the hospital to, to see some sick member of the church, and they say, Pastor John, give us a word. Give us an encouraging word from the Lord. And he was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. He said, I was totally caught off. I was totally unprepared. I just kind of winged something on the spot, made it up, whatever. I get back down from the hospital. I get into my car. I shut the door, and I said, Lord, 
that will never happen again. And from that point on, the very first thing he did was memorize Psalm 46. So I love Psalm 46. We're taking a pause. We're obviously not in John's Gospel today. We'll be back. But man, I love Psalm 46. So so let me uh, set this up for us. Uh, Because what's going to happen here is Psalm 46 is designated, bottom line up front, to increase our confidence. If some of you need to have your confidence increased, this is a good day. But he's not going to try to increase your confidence in yourself. He's going to try to increase your confidence in God. That's what he's going to do. So here's what's happening. The psalm begins in the midst of a situation of great uncertainty. A situation where there are great fears surrounding the psalmist. And what we're going to see in this story is, what does it look like to have security? What does it look like to have peace in God during times of fear and uncertainty in my life? And so he says, in verse 1, right out of the gate, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So right out of the gate, here's the situation we're dropped into in verse 1. Trouble. Trouble. And not the, I knew you were trouble when you walked in, like Taylor Swift kind of trouble. Not that type of trouble. But rather for the psalmist, he finds himself in a situation that is otherwise hopeless. He finds himself in a situation in which Multiple problems are happening at the exact same time. As I imagine that might be the case for some of you. In which maybe something's blown up in your face. Or things haven't worked out the way you thought they were going to work out. And right now in life, it might be a little scary. A little bit of uncertainty, perhaps. Like for some of you, you're having trouble right now. Like the people in this room, they don't know that you're having trouble. You're having trouble. Like for some of you, you are in trouble. And if not, you you will be at some point. And and when you're there, what are you going to do? Who who are you going to ask for help? And the truth is, what I've learned is that everyone trusts something. Everyone trusts something. And to be clear, the focus here in this story isn't as simple as, oh, you just need to put your, fo- your, your faith in God. You just need to put your trust in God. But rather, the focus of the story is that God is trustworthy. Because what matters is not whether you have faith. What matters is whether what you have faith in is trustworthy. And so the psalmist shows up and he says, yes. Yes, he is. Yes, God is trustworthy, and he's trustworthy because of who he is. He is our refuge and strength. And the word refuge in in the Hebrew, this is essentially like a shelter. That if you're in trouble, you can go run to that shelter to escape from attack, to escape from a storm, to escape from an element. And he's saying, God's like this shelter. He's a refuge. He's He's a refuge. And this really comes from Yahweh, which is... The, the name for God in the Old Testament. His relationship with vulnerable people who are in trouble and in need of help. But I, I point out to this, notice this. He's not just a refuge. I mean, he is, but he's not just a refuge. He's also, the text tells us, a very present help. 
A present help. Not a nine-to-five help. He's a present help. And I'm not sure if you've had those moments where you needed help, and so you pick up the phone, you're calling technical support, and you only find out, oh, sorry, you've dialed outside normal business hours. It's incredibly frustrating. Like, because that's when you need help in that moment right then and right there. But here's the good news. God doesn't operate like that. God is always there to help us 24-7 around the clock. And all we have to do is run to him, run into the refuge. But the great problem is we don't. We don't. And then if we do, he's not always the first option that we run to when we're in trouble. He's the second option. He's the third third option, he's the fourth option, he's the fifth option, if that, thus when we experience trouble in our lives, it reveals who and what we really trust to save us. And for many people, the who and the what we trust is in nothing more than paper mache pillars of security that we've created for ourselves that collapse when exposed to pressure of any kind. In other words, our, our personal peace and our security, it's, it's never as secure as we may think it is. And in verse 2 and 3, you're going to make this abundantly clear. Notice what he says. Therefore, we will not fear. He's saying we're not going to fear. Why? Because these, these, these moments are very scary. He says, no, we're not going to fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble at its swelling. See, what the, what the psalmist does in these two verses is he's going to paint this picture of, one word, destabilization. And, and that's because for, for most people, we go, about our, we go about our lives with little to no anticipation that the status quo is ever going to change. So we wake up, we go about our day, we go home, we go to bed, we wake up, repeat. But what if it does change? What if the pattern is broken and instead of getting up, instead of going about our day or, or coming home and going to bed, maybe in that series of events, we, we get a phone call. And we find out that one of our family members just died. We turn on the news and only to learn that a plane has just crashed into a building. Like, what then? See, in verse 2, the psalmist imagines earth as the epitome of stability and unchangingness. And I think that's relatable. But what if something happens, like a landslide or an earthquake and it kills thousands of people because that's that's the picture here right it's change it's destabilization in the world and it's uncertainty and that happens all the time like whether it's being brought about in an instance by a landslide in verse 2 or by Russian aggression into Ukraine or Hamas attacking Israel it can and has and will continue to happen and I think it's a very truly scary thought because that means like our world is not as stable as we as we maybe want it to be or hope that it is a truly scary thought but not for the psalmist at least not in the same way. 
See, the, the psalmist is not afraid because of the refuge he has told us about in verse 1. And, and here's the good news. We have access to that same refuge 24-7. Like, no, no matter what type of trouble that we're in, no matter how uncertain our life might be, the psalmist, the psalmist is covered. And so he, he closes this verse with saying, Selah. Which a lot of people ask me, hey Joe, when in the Bible you see the word Selah? Like, what does that word mean? And I'm like, oh, well, the word literally means rise. Okay, uh, it literally means rise. And then I usually get the follow-up question. It says, uh, well, if, if it means rise, why, why does he say that? And my, my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, Selah appears all throughout uh, the Psalms, usually at the end of lines without any type of consistent pattern. And at other times it comes at the close of a section, like in Psalm 66. Still other times it comes in the middle of a section or in the middle of a sentence, like in Psalm 67 or Psalm 68. And, and theologians really aren't sure why it's there. Some believe that it, it might be this like liturgical term. So uh, there they are, they say Selah, and it's actually calling maybe the, the choir to raise their voice. Uh, David Allen Hubbard, he had a very interesting theory that he advocated. He said that Selah was inserted anytime David broke a string, which is, which is kind of random, because there's, there's no uh, logic about when you break a string. It it's just, just happens, just like Selah kind of just shows up whenever throughout. But regardless, here's the point. There is a place of safety for those who run to God. But for many of us, we, we, we don't. Or we only turn and run to God when our world is getting turned upside down, when the status quo changes for us, and, and then we realize we can't run to anything else to save us. Despite all the technological advancements, like there are still some things that we simply cannot prevent, that we simply cannot control, and in these moments, we are reminded that for some of us, what we've been placing our faith in is just fake. And it won't hold up under pressure. It's Paper mache. I, I call it the windshield wiper effect. When, when you get in your car, you turn the windshield wipers on, you run the wipers, the, the wipers are going and they get the mud and the dirt like off the window to allow us to see clearly, to see reality. The problem is, for most people, they never bother to run the wipers. And, and so for many of us, we go about our day thinking that we don't need God thinking that we're smarter, thinking that we're stronger, thinking that we're totally self-sufficient. That is, until the status quo changes. Until our world is totally wrecked and turned upside down, like in verse 2 and 3. See, the truth is, we can run the windshield wipers now, and we can humbly acknowledge like our need for God. Or, or we can continue in pride, and, and sooner or later something will happen in our lives in which one way or another, God, he's going to get our attention. And the psalmist continues. He says this in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So here's the picture. There's a city. It's, it's a great city. It's a fantastic city. It's doing awesome. It's got a river going through it. It's strong. The city is secure. But the city is not secure because of its natural strength. It's not secure because of its walls. It's not secure because of its simply safe security system. It's not secure because they gave everyone 9mm Glocks. Rather, it's okay. 
because God helps it. It's okay because God's presence is there. The presence that the psalmist was showing us back in verse 1. And notice in verse 5 it says, God will help her when morning dawns. Now that's a very interesting phrase. God will help her when morning dawns? It's a phrase that the original audience would have very much connected with. A phrase that perhaps you'll connect with too. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, the, the people of God, Israel, was They were held in slavery in Egypt for 400 years under the pharaohs. God raises up Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. He goes to Pharaoh. God says to let my people go. Pharaoh says, that's not happening. God brings a plague, sends Moses again. Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way. Another plague, another plague, sends Moses again, sends Moses again, sends Moses again, over and over and over again. The Pharaoh continues to refuse until the last and final plague in which the Pharaoh says, fine, leave, get out of here. The people of Israel, they get up, they go. And then Pharaoh has a change of mind. He's angry now. I'm not letting him go. I'm Pharaoh. They're my slaves. It's not happening. He pursues them, sends his armies out after them. The people of Israel, they've got nowhere to go. And then God parts the Red Sea. Now they have a way of escape. They cross the Red Sea. And just as the last people are getting across the Red Sea, the Egyptian army enters the seabed. And it says in Exodus 14, 27, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when morning appeared. When morning dawned, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. What the psalmist does is he intentionally places this exact phrase right here in the story. A phrase they would have immediately recognized, immediately connected with the Exodus story, crossing the Red Sea with Moses. But that's the whole point. The whole point is look to God, trust God, hope in God. Don't put your faith in these paper mache pillars of man-made self-reliance because I'm telling you, they are not as secure as you think they are. Case in point, remember the Egyptians. Put your faith in God. He is trustworthy. He will help you. And of course, he has before. When another morning dawned in the Exodus with Moses, with the Egyptians, were about to wipe us out. When they were closing in on us, when there was nowhere else to run, the psalmist says, remember that story and run to him. He is our refuge. He will help us night or day, 24-7. And it's in his presence that makes the city safe and secure in the midst of trouble and uncertainty. The nations rage, he says in verse 6. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The, The idea here is the enemy nations that surround Israel and the psalmists are growling. Some things never change, right? doesn't matter what century you live in. That's what the meaning of the word is, right? The, the nations rage. That is, they're, they're, they're growling. And so what's happening historically in Israel, when the psalmist is writing this, is he's, he's got several cities in Israel that are under constant threat, several cities in Israel that are always vulnerable to being attacked by their enemies. Like I said, some things never change. And it says they're raging, they're growling, they're threatening the psalmist and the people. And what he is saying is that when this occurs, these same nations, they'll just fall down. They will melt, they will collapse. The word here is 
totter because of God's presence with his people as he just stated in the previous verse. Thus the city will hold fast. And notice the imagery he uses to explain how this is going to happen. God opens his mouth. (laughs) He opens his mouth. It's a little terrifying, right? Terrifying, but also encouraging and scary, like all at once. He utters his voice. That's all God has to do. He speaks. And the earth melts. The earth collapses. This isn't the first time that we've seen this sort of imagery being used. For example, in Psalm 29, the psalmist compares God's voice with this thunderstorm moving across the Mediterranean. God's power is heard when he speaks. And he builds on this idea in the very next verse. Look at verse 7. He says, The Lord of hosts, key phrase, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So verse 7, it announces some really, really good news. And the news is this. God is not merely as, verse 1 points out, a present and available help that we can retreat to at any time, which he is, he is. But God is also an active help that brings deliverance. And to understand what I mean by active help is to understand what that phrase, Lord of hosts, being used here in verse 7 means. Uh, That phrase, Lord of hosts, in the Hebrew, it's a term that refers to and means military service, military campaign, military men, armies, and and troops. So when the psalmist uses that phrase here in verse 7, he says, the Lord of hosts is with us, he's essentially saying the heavenly army, the supernatural forces that God commands that was created by God to serve him will fight for them. Can you imagine that? Imagine knowing if you're in a real tight spot that you can just pick up the phone and uh, you can call the commander in Fayetteville uh, at Fort Bragg, the 82nd Airborne, and then he can deploy the 82nd Airborne Division. He can activate them, deploy them, like anywhere in the world, like in 24 hours to help you, which, by the way, they can do that. Like, imagine if you could do that, right? You'd feel pretty confident. You'd feel pretty secure. Right? You got the 82nd Airborne Division like backing you up. If you get into it and you got to throw down, like they're there. They got you. Imagine the sort of comfort derived from knowing that's at your disposal. And, and this is exactly what the psalmist is getting at. There is an army of angels at the ready waiting for the commander's request to help us to battle for us on our behalf. Guys, I, I don't know what could be like more comforting than that when you're in a situation in which your whole world's turned upside down and things are really, really scary. And it should be. It should be comforting. Because these, all these realities are to bring us to a point of invitation in verse 8. Here's what he says in verse 8 and 9. Come, behold. Come, come and see. Come here, come here. I've got to show you this. Come here. That's, that's what he's saying in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So what we, hear, what we have here in these two verses, in one word is this, invitation. Invitation. Like, if you're like, what is verse 8 and 9 about? Oh yeah, it's, it's hashtag invitation. That's what it's about. That's the language being used here by the psalmist. He says, just come, I want to show you this. I want to show you all the amazing things that that God has done. That's invitation language. And in this invitation, the people who are speaking, and this would include the psalmist, 
Because they know that God is their refuge and strength. They, they know that Yahweh is with them. Thus, the invitation in verse 8 is an invitation, presumably, to outsiders. Specifically, we would say verse 8 and 9 is an invitation to non-Christians, to the nations at large. And the hope of the invitation is that they might respond to the invitation and find salvation in God alone. That they might find an alternative to the destruction that they are being invited symbolically to witness. And, and yet, I, I don't know if that's the only group here. That is, I, I don't think the invitation for sake of application is, is limited simply to non-Christians, i.e. the nations. I, I think it's also plausible that the invitation is also for fellow Israelites. Because, hold on, hold on a second. Fellow Israelites? The person writing this, the psalmist, he's an Israelite. And, and that's true. He's the one sending out the invitation, and yeah, technically true. Thus, what I think the psalmist perhaps has in mind is that these invites are going to groups of Israelites that we might refer to as like lukewarm, to borrow from the, the Christian cultural vernacular, that these invites are for these non-Christians, yes, but it's also for, it's for the people who maybe they grew up in church. They sort of half-heartedly believe these things. Half-heartedly, but not really. Or, or they believe them, but maybe they only kind of believe these things when it was convenient, or only when they were in trouble, or only when they actually needed God. But the rest of the time, when they didn't need God and life was going along smoothly, and they didn't really have time for God. That's who I think the invitations are being sent to as well, and that's because throughout Israel's history, they found it incredibly difficult to trust God. They found it incredibly difficult to believe in God. They found it incredibly difficult to obey God, and they constantly had to battle the drift, the drift in their faith, as well as the temptation to seek out other forms of security to put their faith in. And the reality is, this temptation, I think, is equally true for people today. Because, guys, if, if everything's going smoothly in your life, you, you don't feel like you need God. But when the poop hits the fan, as we say in the army, it reminds us that we've needed him the entire time. And I think that's because moments of crisis, they give us a very clear view of things. Moments of crisis cause us to run the windshield wipers, to, to get the mud off the window so that we can see clearly. And, and then when we do see clearly, we see how much we've needed God the entire time. But, but the temptation for many of us is, well, I'll just go with the flow, because after all, that's what most people do, just like the nations. They don't worship God. They put their trust in everything other than God. And so the warning that we have in light of the invitation given from the psalmist, I think is really best restated by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Drifting is the danger. Because drifting doesn't lead you to God. It actually deceives you little by little until you find yourself a million miles away from God. That's how drifting works. Like if you've ever gone to the ocean, you know how this works. If you're not paying attention and there's a strong current, it'll pull you away. And you, you're, like, you're like, okay, my stuff's right there. I have it lined up right there on the clock in the back of the room. And if you don't pay attention, you'll find yourself like way out there. That's how drifting works. If you don't pay attention... You get pulled farther and farther away from God. That's what the author of Hebrews is warning against. And so the psalmist sends out these invitations 
He says, come. Anybody can come. Come and see all the amazing things that God has done. Come. Put your trust in God. And then he says, of course, a verse that if you grow up in the church, you're probably familiar with. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And, and here's the thing. Up to this point, the psalmist has been doing all the talking. And then suddenly, unannounced, Yahweh speaks. Suddenly and unannounced, God does the talking. And he speaks Here in verse 10, the idea is very plain and simple. And the idea is this. God is trying to get their attention. Just as God, he's trying to get some of our attention today. God is perhaps trying to get your attention today. And so here he speaks and he says, be still and know that I am God. He says, in effect, stop fighting me. Stop being arrogant and thinking that you figured all this out on your own. Thinking you don't need me. Thinking you don't need anyone else. Thinking that tomorrow is going to come. Because you know what? Tomorrow's not promised to you. So bow the knee, respond to the invitation, come and behold and acknowledge who the really only constant is, who is the only one who's totally trustworthy, the only one who's able to deliver you, the only one who's able to save you. And yet, at the same time, I think there's this urging for the lukewarm Israelites who try to determine their own destiny, who try to control their own fate. They are not the only people who need to acknowledge that God is God, and therefore that God is our refuge and strength, our our help and our haven. These lukewarm individuals, they need to wake up. They need to wake up and see that Yahweh intends to be the only Savior for them and for the world, and furthermore, that God is not happy to be your plan B. God is not happy to like play the the sloppy seconds for you. He's not. God's not happy to be called only when you're in trouble and you're in a jam. And then tossed aside and told to get out of the way once everything else is smooth. He says, be still and know that I am God. And that command, when it's given, oh, by the way, what was the word I just used? Command. It's a command. And when there's a command, here's my advice. We should probably listen to it. And in contemporary Christianity today, this verse is commonly misunderstood which involves a sort of reinterpretation of the psalm. So typically, this is what I hear, and this is what I mean when it comes to this verse. You just need to be still, and then that's followed usually by some well-intended but incorrect exhortation to just, just get alone with God in that like very calm and quiet place. And it's not bad advice. That's just a misunderstanding of the verse because that's not what the verse is saying. It's, it's not what the psalmist is saying. It's not what God is saying. Like, nowhere in the psalms is there ever this ideal of silence. And I used to think they did because this verse is, like I said, super misunderstood within Christian culture. But Psalm 46 is very clear about this. And that is, one finds God not in the silence. God, God is found in the noise. God is found in the chaos. God is found in the turbulence of the world. That's precisely what's taking place in this story. It's loudness, it's craziness from the onset of the story. I mean, go back to verse 2 and 3. The earth is giving away. The mountains are being moved into the sea. The waters are roaring. There's earthquakes and landslides. The people are dying and being killed. There's anything but silence going on. And yet it's from that noisy chaos that one comes to term with the be still and know that I am God part. 
the knowing of who God is part. See, the goal is not, I need to be still and quiet and meditative in order to come to this knowledge and peace, but rather, once I come to this knowledge in the midst of the noise and the chaos, because we can't escape it, it grants me the ability to have peace and not be afraid, despite the instability and fear and loudness all around me. And so he closes and he says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. The psalmist goes back to this Lord of hosts imagery from verse 7. He restates it here in verse 11. And the thinking is, if the psalmist is willing to restate it here in verse 11, it's probably like pretty important. Like when people restate things, they're either getting confused uh, because they don't remember and they're forgetful and old or like that they think it's like really important. That's what's going on here. It's like, this is important, so I'm saying it one more time here in verse 11. You definitely want to pay attention. And the big idea here is this. We are safe because of God. We are safe because he is the warrior God. We are safe and secure because he isn't just a present help. He's an active deliverer. And this is, I think, so important that we understand because it helps us to give up thinking that we have the responsibility for our own destiny, our own peace, our own security. Some might even use the word surrender. See, the, the, psalmist, the psalmist makes it very clear that in the city of God, it is not merely a, a heavenly community. It's also an earthly reality. And in this city, it's not for us to fix things. It's not for us to fix things. Like, that's why I try to tell like, non-Christians, like, like non-Christians, your job isn't to try to be a better person. Like the message of the gospel isn't like be a better person. The message of the gospel is you can't. The message of the gospel is you suck. Like you, you do. You're terrible. You're a terrible, terrible person. Like if you were a really good person, you wouldn't need Jesus in the first place. It's not for us to expect and try to fix things ourselves, but rather it's for us to expect God to fix things. And so we join with the psalmist in praising God for who he is. We, we, praise the, we, we join with him in praising God for who he is, for inviting us, like in verse 8, to, to come to the city of God, to join with the people of God on the mission of God in helping to bring others under the authority of God by accepting and believing and acknowledging the truth declared in this chapter in Psalm 46 to be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He's waiting. Run to him. As the team comes, I want to pray for us. Lord, I thank you for living the life we could not live and dying the death we should have died and paying the price that only you could afford to pay. We couldn't do enough good things in a thousand years to like earn our way to finding favor with you. And I thank you that you did what we couldn't do. And Lord, for, I, I pray, Lord, for those of us who don't know you, Lord, that we would respond to the invitation, the invitations that, that was given back in Psalm 46, thousands of years ago when the psalmist wrote this, just as true today, to come, to come and behold that you are the only savior of the world. May we put our trust in you because of how trustworthy you are. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.